Sam Parr, welcome to the Andy Hackers podcast. Thank you. Been uh, listening to you guys for a long time. You are the founder of The Hustle. The Hustle is a daily newsletter for tech and business news. It goes out every morning, it takes five or six minutes to read it. It's always entertaining. It's very well written. And you've grown it to something like a million and a half subscribers, which is a crazy high number for a newsletter. We're going to talk about that later on for sure, for uh, some purely selfish reasons on my end. Uh, you also run HustleCon, which I've heard nothing but great things about. It's a yearly startup conference where some super successful founders get on stage and share their stories and their expertise. You've got a podcast now that you're producing called My First Million. And I know yeah. I'm probably leaving a few things out. You do a lot. So we're a media company and we just, it sounds like I like do all of this stuff on my own. We're, we're a media company and so we have like loads of different products. So yeah, you named a lot of them, but we also just released, released Trends. So Trends.co, Trends.co is the URL. And that's our first paid subscription product. I'm going there right now. What is Trends? How does it work? Yeah, so the idea here is I really am fascinated with Forrester and Gartner and uh, those research companies. And so we're building a research arm at our company. And so users can pay $300 a year. And we have a team of researchers who go out and scour the web and look at millions of data points as well as, as, well as do traditional journalistic stuff like talk to people and dig. And we find really interesting companies to profile and deconstruct and explain how they work very in-depth. But we also look at a whole bunch of uh, growth signals, like how often people are searching for something and what's the growth velocity of something. And we, uh, we talk about that. So it's almost like a, I don't know, Harvard Business Review or a more affordable Gartner, but for growing and starting companies. I like how you introduced it by saying that you like Forrester, that you like Gartner, that you like this stuff. What goes into deciding to launch another product like this when you've already got so many things going on? Is it really driven by just things that you like? It's not as much going on as you think it is. It, if, maybe if it looks like that on the outside. And, but we have close to 30 employees. And I could see us growing to hundreds and then thousands of people. And with a, a media company, a media company or an information company, which is what we are, it's pretty much just a series of projects that are all built around one brand. So the goal from day one, when we launched in 2016, was we're going to build a massive email list and we're going to monetize it through advertising in the email and we're going to bootstrap our way to do it. And all of the profits that we make from the email, we're going to pour into building ancillary products and we're going to use our distribution on our email list to uh, make those popular. So the strategy was to do all this from the very beginning, but the specific products that we've launched, like Trends, that just is uh, a combination of testing loads of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that we products that we've tried that have failed that you know most people don't know about. And then there is a combination of what are what can we be world class at? What can make really great revenue and profit? And what will our users love? And most importantly, what do we find fun to work on? It's interesting that you had this whole plan laid out from the very beginning. And it's a little bit counterintuitive because most people wouldn't set out to say, hey, I'm going to start an email list and that's going to bring in a ton of money and finance everything else. Because most people don't think that an email list can make a lot of money. That's a total misconception. A lot of people think that. But if you talk to any, well, you do, so you know. If you talk to a lot of different commerce companies, a lot of their sales come from their email list. It's one of the highest ROI uh, marketing channels. So the idea early on was I had seen this interview with, uh, this woman who um, started this company, Daily Candy, it was a daily email with 2 million subscribers and it sold for $125 million in revenue or uh, uh, $125 million it sold for. But this was in like 2004. But I was like, 
email is mostly the same since 2004. Like it hasn't actually changed a lot. And so I just thought, well, that strategy worked for her. It works for e-commerce companies. When I started email, which I can talk about later, it started as a conference and it worked for our conference. It was just an email list. And so we just thought, let's just put that on steroids and make it work. And how well is it working today? Like how much money do you make from your email list? Yeah, I mean, the email alone, email advertising alone is eight figures in revenue. Um, Whoa. Yeah, it can grow. I think email advertising only can be a 30 or 40 or $50 million a year business. And then add in our other things. Our goal is to make hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue. Let's talk about your goals for a bit because you're working hard. What's motivating you to keep working hard, to keep pushing to $100 million in revenue and beyond? And what's stopping you from just retiring to a life of leisure on a beach somewhere? Uh, just adventure, really. I just, uh, I'm kind of competitive with myself. I'm a former athlete and I always, people ask me this sometimes, I guess I could just kind of chill and I chill every once in a while. I'll take three or four weeks off a year. I don't know. Do you exercise? Yeah. Uh, do, do, okay. Maybe if you lift weights, you're like, all right, I benched 200 pounds this week. Like, I wonder if I could like work really hard in three months, bench 250. It's like, are you a different person between 200 and 250? No, but it's just like a really fun thing to push yourself and to try more because some people have personalities where it's, just, it's never enough and it's a really exciting to, to kind of keep going. Yeah, I'm the kind of person where I, I get too sucked into that stuff. If there's any sort of number associated with my progress, weightlifting, uh, revenue. I started playing chess recently. I suck, but watching my rating go up as I get better, is, like, it's, I never want to stop and it's kind of its own reward. Yeah, I think it's just like a human instinct for a lot of people is you just want to push the boundaries. And so that's really what it is. I really like the people I work with. So why don't I retire? Because I enjoy what I do. Yeah, I don't know. It's simple. I just like going after things and pushing forward. And I enjoy the people I work with. Let's talk about your story a bit because I want to understand kind of who you are and how you got here. You've called yourself in the past a Midwestern small business owner who learned how to use the internet. Uh, how did yeah. that transition happen? Yeah, so I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee. Originally, I went for two reasons. I had a track and field scholarship, but also the school I went to had a music business program. And this was right when I went to college was right when the TV show Entourage had ended. And I was like, I want to be like Ari Gold. So I'll study the music industry and be like the Ari Gold of music. And while I was there in college, I met a guy named Mike Wolf. And Mike Wolf is this guy who's on the TV show American Pickers. Have you ever seen that? No, I've never seen it. Well, at the time, I bet you've seen Pawn Stars, right? Yeah. We came on right after that. And it was kind of the same thing where Mike would go to barns and all, all over the country. And Mike would buy old motorcycles or gas pumps, things like that, and explain the history around them and then sell them. Well, anyway, I saw him on the street and I was a fan and I was just trying to get his picture and an autograph. And I eventually kind of talked him into letting me run his or help set up his new store in Nashville. And in doing that, I learned about entrepreneurship. And I was like, well, I'd always been selling stuff on eBay. I'd always been making money on my own on the internet or just like selling stuff in real life. And I was like, man, like this whole selling stuff, it could actually become like a really like, this could be my life. It doesn't have to be just like a little thing I do because uh, I want to make like $1,000 next month. But anyway, I worked for him. And then I decided to open up a chain of hot dog stands. So I opened up one hot dog stand. I, it was like a hot dog cart. It's really simple. It was just like the only business that I could afford to like start. And I did that and it started working. 
and then we grew and it and we expanded it and so that's kind of how I got that small business mentality but I uh eventually started an online store when I was like a junior in college and it started making really good money and I was like oh the internet is totally 100% better than staying outside in the 100 degree Nashville weather and selling stuff I'm going I'm going to pursue that and so I just kind of googled like where in America do the internet companies live and uh they said San Francisco. So I left school and a little bit early and eventually graduated. But I left school and moved out to San Francisco and started a business that was eventually sold for a very small amount. And then after that, I started HustleCon, which is our event now. And originally, it was a very selfish reason. I just wanted to meet our speakers or meet other attendees and find someone to partner with. But the way that I made the conference popular was I just created an email newsletter where I would blog or write newsletters about each speaker. And that actually got more popular probably than the conference. But the conference made like 60 grand in profit in like the first six weeks. It was like, well, that's cool. Let's do that again. I launched the event on May 15th and the event took place on July 1st. So I did it about six weeks, took six months off. And I was like, let's do that again. And this time it made like a quarter of a million dollars in revenue or something like that. And the way in which I made it popular again was this email newsletter. And at the end of it, I was like, look, okay, this thing has made like 300 grand in revenue with not a lot of work. That's great, but I want to go bigger. And so that's when the idea of like, we're using content to get people to come to an event. Can we use content to like build a huge company, build a media company? And so that's kind of when we, when we went all in on the hustle. So personally, from everything I've heard, I want absolutely nothing to do with the conference. People tell me all the time, Cortland, you should start an Indie Hackers conference. I'm just like, no, it sounds like an absolute nightmare to run. But I wonder if I'm wrong here. Maybe you're hearing different things than I was. What convinced you to start a conference and should I start one? It depends. Conferences can be very lucrative, specifically trade shows. There's multiple companies out there that make billions of, literally billions of dollars a year in revenue and hundreds of millions of dollars a year in profit from conferences, specifically trade shows. But the majority of people I've met, specifically the majority of people I've met in the internet world are horrible at handling the economics of a conference and are horrible at the logistics of it. And they spend way too much money and they don't know how to market their event successfully or their event is just like, just like every other event or yeah, they just stink at running it. So if you can run an event successfully, let's say you wanted to make half a million dollars in revenue with like 40% profit margin, 100% you could, you could do that. It could be done. The problem with events is most people will do a few do a few mistakes. One, they host it at like a hotel or something that has like union labor or where they make you use a caterer. And that adds up so much. It costs so much money to do those things. And that's really hard for a first-time conference. The second thing is people don't realize that in order to get like the big sponsorship money for conferences, it usually takes a year or two of proving that you have a good event. And then finally, people spend way too much money on things that don't matter, like name tags. If you have a thousand people at an event, you could very easily spend 20 grand just for name tags and loads of things like that. And that is where people completely lose their shirt and lose a ton of money on events. Is this all stuff that you knew going into HustleCon or did you kind of learn this on the job as you ran the conference? When I started HustleCon, I was 24 and I, so I didn't know anything. So I kind of learned on the job. I've always been really good at seeking people out who are experts and I just grill them and I learn everything that they know. And I just say, what are your biggest mistakes? What were the biggest mistakes? And I just try my hardest not to repeat those mistakes. So I kind of knew this a little bit just because I'd read a ton and I talked to people. 
I'm also naturally very frugal, so it was kind of in my DNA. But I've learned a lot along the way. So I had I didn't have any experience, that's for sure. Well, despite that, you decided to run a conference anyway. And your first time around, you had, I think, six weeks from idea to the date of the event, which is insane. How did you put something together so fast, and what was going through your head? Well, it's not that hard, really. I mean, it's hard work, but it's not like intellectually challenging. I mean, my first event, if you actually Google Sam Parr, HustleCon, $40,000, or I forget the name of the blog post. I think it was like, I spoke at HustleCon, but Sam made $40,000 or something like that. And this was in 2014. And so you could see that blog post. And I actually list out what my P&L statements were. But it was quite simple. I, I spent maybe ten dollars or $15,000. And it was like $5,000 for a venue. I got people to donate loads and loads of free food. I didn't have name tags. So like my hard costs were actually quite low. And in order to get speakers, I pretty much just cold emailed. I mean, I didn't have a network at the time. I just cold emailed a lot of speakers. And I, the truth is I kind of lied to them. I said like, hey, Joel... Would you come and speak at HustleCon? 400 people are going to be there, and these other speakers are going to be speaking. And of course, those other speakers hadn't confirmed. But I did that same shtick to all the other speakers. And thankfully, nearly all of them said, yeah, sure, I'll come. And so uh, that's how I got the first speakers. And then I knew how to do... I'm a self-taught copywriter. And I always kind of knew that email marketing was really effective. And I always knew how to get traffic to come to websites. And I just said to myself, well, if I get the product, which is these speakers... I can, I can get the marketing and distribution by creating lots of blog posts, collecting their emails of people who visit the website, and then just constantly emailing them interesting stuff and eventually convincing them to come. And so that was the, kind of the methodology. This is like uh, the fire Festival gone right. You know, what would happen if the fire Festival actually yeah. worked out? Let's break this down. I'm looking at this blog post that you talked about. For people listening, it's called HustleCon 2014. I went, I spoke, but Sam made 40K from it. Yeah, and just... I have to preface this by saying I was a lot younger and wilder <laughs> when I wrote that. I don't write the same way or talk the same way as I did. There's a list in here, and it's titled, How Did I Sell 400 Tickets in 7 Weeks? And a lot of it is what you just mentioned, basically. Writing and finding blog posts, WordPress plugins, creating a drip campaign. What would you say is the most important part here if you're going to do this again, starting from scratch with no connections, no audience? Start blogging and getting traffic and collecting emails. Emails, emails, emails. My first 200 emails were, I just put like every person who I'd emailed on Gmail and like maybe like my 100 LinkedIn connections, I just put them on the email list without asking. And that kind of started it. And then I would post blog posts and post those posts all over Reddit and Hacker News. And that's kind of how I got my first bit of traffic. Can you talk a little bit about what your initial blog posts were about? You could probably, you could actually see the blog posts in that, in that post. I only wrote like 10 blog posts. You can actually see them on that post that you're, re- you're referring to. Yeah, I would just write articles about each speaker and I would explain how they do what they do. It was pretty simple, I think. But my emails that talked about the blog posts, I think were kind of clever and interesting. And I kind of wrote in a way that not a lot of people at the time were writing like. You've actually said in the past that copywriting is one of the most underrated skills, one of the most important skill sets that anyone can develop. 100%. And it really shines through in everything that you've worked on, from starting this blog, to starting an email newsletter, starting a media company, of course. How did copywriting become such an important skill for you? Well, I learned, I read this book years and years and years ago about direct mail advertising. So basically, like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, before uh, the internet was around, 
these guys would just write these letters to people like saying like, hey, would you like to buy this encyclopedia or vacuum? But they would say it in very clever, or interesting ways. And I was like, that's amazing. And when I was selling hot dogs, I realized that you had to have like a shtick or a story to get people's attention because like hot dogs are pretty much all the same. And so I realized that copywriting was a salesmanship on paper that could scale to an infinity amount of people. Because once you write something forever, it can be seen by everyone. And so I just started studying copywriting like crazy. And after I sold my last business, I pretty much locked myself in a bedroom for six months. And I would get the best sales letters of all time. And I would write them out by hand to figure out exactly how they did what they did. And I just kind of learned about copywriting and how to do it effectively. But what a lot of people don't realize is copywriting isn't just sales. Copywriting is understanding what motivates people. It's understanding gaps in the market. It's understanding where opportunity is. It's understands. It's about understanding what people want and how to solve problems for them. And then just communicating to them how your solution will solve their problem. And once you master that, like it helps with, with professional relationships. It helps with when I was a single guy with meeting women, it helps with selling stuff for your business. It helps with relating to people. I mean, it, it, it just helps in so many different ways. You said that when you wrote this blog post, you were 24, it was a different era, you were younger. How would you say your copywriting skills have evolved since then? Less like cute or less like gimmicky. When I was first starting, there was basically like a handful of uh, hooks that I knew worked really well. Some of them could be a little gimmicky, and I, and I definitely pounced on that. So you're running this conference. You are an expert copywriter or well on your way to becoming one. You're able to no, blog. I wouldn't, say I, I wouldn't say I was an expert, but I understood <laughs> like the principles. You understood the principles, and you're using them to write these emails, these blog posts that I really like the idea behind, because you're just doing profiles, you said, of the speakers and how they were able to accomplish the things that they had accomplished. And obviously, that aligns with why people are coming to the event. You're not writing one thing and then advertising another. Your writing is itself an advertisement for the conference. And I really have to imagine that that played a pretty strong role in why your ticket sales are so consistent, why you're able to get so many people to show up your first time around. Let's talk about the second time around. How did that go? Was it more or less stressful than the first time around? And were there any learnings you could apply from the first conference to the second? I would say I wasn't sweating bullets the first time because I knew how to control my costs. And basically, I got to break even really, really, really quickly. So it was, and I didn't actually intend to make money the first time. I just wanted to do it for fun and it happened to make money. But my goal was just don't lose money. And so I got to that point of don't lose money really quickly. And so I wasn't sweating bullets like I'm going to lose everything. But it was nerve wracking. Like, are people going to like this? Am I actually going to be able to pull this off? And the second time I did it, I realized I realized how to find like serenity and calmness inside of <laughs> chaos because Events are chaos. The, with events, a lot of times, you, a lot of people make like the bulk of their revenue in the last two weeks. So, like the last two weeks leading up to an event, and it makes them sweat bullets. And I kind of saw that pattern in the first time. And I also understood how to like control a crowd. So that helped a lot. What about your blogging and your email strategy? Did that stay the same for conference number two, or did it evolve in some way? It's no different. I just did the same. Like. I'm probably like average at intelligence. I wasn't like smart enough to like figure out some clever way to get ticket sales. I just said to myself, well, it worked the first time. If I just do it again, it'll hopefully build off itself and I'll just do it more and it'll double in size. So it was very unsophisticated 
<laughs> in terms of the growth from the first one to the second one. It was just, I'm just going to do the same thing, but more. At what point did you realize that the email list was perhaps a more promising business than the conference, which itself was making a lot of money? I read this interview. I read like five or six different interviews of people who had email lists that turned out to be like huge companies. Like I read about the founding of Groupon and Groupon for the most part early on was an email list. That's all it was. And and so I kind of realized that with phones getting with phones on email getting more popular and everything like email's not like something that's like secondary. Email's the internet. It's like saying like it's like people are like, "Man, I couldn't believe an email could be so big." I'm like that's like saying to me, I couldn't believe a website could be so big. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, how can an email not be big? It's just attention. It's just a, uh, a platform. It's not as simple as, as, I mean, it is simple, but it doesn't have to be as tiny as, as a lot of people kind of write it off to be because more people probably spend, I bet you people spend as much time in Gmail as they do Safari or Chrome. And so very early on after um, kind of reading about Groupon, Thrillist, Daily Candy, and a handful of other companies, uh, I realized like, oh man, like email, a lot of people are writing this off as a small thing. And all these huge media companies like Vice and Business Insider are either multi-hundred or multi-billion dollar businesses, multi-hundred dollar, uh, hundred, hundred million dollar businesses. And they're losing traffic on because Facebook is kind of turning back the dial. Email like is really consistent. What if I just built try to build a multi-billion dollar company using email instead of just like a Facebook or a website. And so, I don't know. It just kind of was a natural progression. I like the strategy of reading about other successful companies and trying to figure out how they did it and using that to sort of inspire you and lead you down a particular direction because you don't really want to invent the wheel, right? Other people have done it before. And what's cool about you in particular is you aren't just reading about internet businesses, but you're bringing your expertise from running these smaller real-world businesses, from running your hot dog stand, from working at other jobs. And so you're sort of combining like all this copywriting expertise and this other sort of older business knowledge, because businesses have been around forever. Well, that's like a huge mistake that people make is they say like, oh, well, we're a startup, therefore we're going to operate this way. It's like, man, business is all the same. You buy low and you sell for a little bit higher. And then you make customers, uh, you create customers and make sure that they're happy. And you find talented people and inspire them to work with you. I mean, that's like as simple as it can get, right? And it doesn't matter if you're a business that makes $1,000 a month or a business that makes a billion dollars a month. That strategy is true. It just maybe you have 10,000 people working together to do it as opposed to just you. And I always felt that in Silicon Valley, which I'm definitely embedded in, that there was a huge mistake in thinking like, we're going to get all these video views or we're going to get all these users. And nine out of 10 times, it's like, uh, hey, so you get all these video views. How the hell are you supposed to be making money? And for us, it was never, we just weren't going to be that type of company where it was about like kind of vanity Silicon Valley metrics. And so that's why I always say we're almost run like a small business that is just trying to like double or triple or quadruple each year. So tell me about this process of how you approached running an email business when you determined that in the long run, it could be more profitable, more promising than just the conference. Yeah, so we had just turned three years old last April. So a couple months ago, or a few months ago, we've turned three years old. And so it seems like a relatively short amount of time, I think. But in the first few months of us like launching The Hustle, originally, we were just a blog. 
where we would blog about cool stories. We, we described yourself as business insider meets vice. But then after a while, we're like, wait a minute, what are we doing? We're getting away from our email roots. Let's like just not even really have a website and only do email. So we started doing that and we're like, well, what content do our people love the most? And we were blogging about evergreen stuff, but eventually we tried blogging about the news and that started taking off. And so in our first year, we got maybe 120,000 email subscribers. They pretty much all came from, we would blog about lots of different things, get traffic, collect emails, and then put them on our email list where we would send them the news they need to know each morning. And that's how we got our first 100 or 100, maybe that's how we got our first 200,000 users, actually. It was like crazy simple. And we just used MailChimp. At this point, we have a really sophisticated CMS and software deal that we kind of built out because we have uh, engineers who work here. But at first, it was just an email, uh, like, a, like a MailChimp newsletter. And the conference kind of funded the whole project. And then once we hit 60 or 70,000 email subscribers, we started putting advertisements in the email. And then that's when things started taking off. So who's we? Who else is working with you on this? How did you find them? And how did you convince them to work with you? The, so at first, it was just me. And then I convinced John Havel, who was, he actually had started the business that where I worked before. He, I kind of convinced him to let me work for him. And then I be, kind of became a co-founder. Um, except, so we kind of switched roles for the next one. I was like, John, I've been working on this thing for six months or a year. Come and try this out with me. And so it was me and him for a little while. And then we convinced friends from our old company or where we had worked previously to join us. And then my head of sales now, who's actually now the president of our company, I went to high school with him and I just kind of emailed them. I go, Hey man, we're both young. I think at the time we were 25. Like we don't have a lot of responsibility. I have this business that makes us a little bit of profit, but I think we can blow it up. You want to give us a shot? And I just kind of convinced them to come. And once I did that, revenue started growing and I was able to just cold email like anyone I could find on LinkedIn who worked in the industry. And I was just networking like crazy. And I would just convince, try to convince everyone to come join us. And our first maybe 10 employees were all really young people. They were either 20, 21, 22. Like, I don't think in our first year, I don't think we had anyone who worked at our company that was over 25. And so everyone was young, which means affordable, aka cheap. I paid myself 40 grand a year. Everyone else was probably paid 40 or $50,000 a year. So it wasn't very expensive. And we just kind of like taught ourselves this business model and figured it out. And now we're able to hire a lot more basically talented and thus more expensive people because it worked out well. The first like handful of hires, it was people who just cold emailed us with their resumes or it was friends. Let's talk about what was going through your head at that time. Because now you're talking about building a media empire. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue as your target. But right after you switched from the conference and started hiring people, did you have your media empire plan already formulated? Yeah, I had read the biography of Ted Turner. And I was like, I want to do that. So very early on, that was the plan. Every once in a while, you're like, this sucks. I hate it. It's going horribly. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. And you're like, I'm going to quit or I'm just going to fire everyone and just pay myself a little bit like a nice salary and just make it a lifestyle thing. And then other times I'm like, I want to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and just go as big as possible. But (laughs) no, the goal early on was let's make this huge but without raising venture capital, at least for a long time. You were living in San Francisco at the time, right? 
Yeah, I still we we have offices here and in Austin, and I live in San Francisco. Yeah, it's not a common thing to say, "Hey, I'm not going to raise money from venture capitalists in San Francisco." And if you're hiring here, especially if you're hiring locally, it's pretty hard to afford people if you're not raising VC. It's really hard. How did you make it happen? I know you live pretty frugally, you hired cheaply, but overall, like what else went into figuring out the economics of the business and making it work? I didn't pay myself a lot. We had cheap offices, so our expenses were low. Like maybe the first year at the end of the first year, we are averaging $30,000 a month in um, expenses. And with the conference revenue and profit, we kind of broke even the first, e- the first year. And then when the email started, I was like, all right, I got to hustle and get us to break even just through email advertising. And so I went out and sold all the first ads. when we were, I was like doing all the writing. Me and John were doing all the writing. And then I went out and sold the ads. And so in doing that, I was able to finance a team of like six or seven people that kind of netted out to be 30 grand a month because we didn't have our a lot of money we just got our we learned our numbers like crazy so i knew very early on what our lifetime value of a customer was going to be what our payback cycle from a client was going to be like how fast we can get the cash what we could charge customers the business model that we have not a lot of people know how to do it but some people do. And I just found those few people who, who do. And they kind of taught me like the economics of it. And I just mastered it like really early on, like our whole team did. So even to this day, like we track everything like a hawk because we just don't waste money. And so I just like learned my numbers like immediately. This seems to be a pretty consistent theme and something that you're really good at, which is finding the people that you need to find and then convincing them to help you. For example, you, you met a TV celebrity on the street and then convinced him to employ you. Now you met the yeah. few people who understood the business model behind an email list and convinced them to help you. How can other people do the same thing? Yeah, a lot of people tell me that, that that's kind of a theme in my life. And I agree. As of today, my network is really, really, really strong. I know a lot of people, which is interesting because I'm actually... I prefer just to be at home alone. I don't actually like like going out and hanging out. So it's kind of like weird. But I was always really good at doing that. And the reason why was I think that I didn't have a lot of pride around like I was never nervous to ask questions. I know that a lot of people who are my friends, they I'm like, dude, just go out and like email this person and ask them how he does it or how she does it. And people were always like nervous to do that. And I've kind of never been like shy about that. My mom and dad kind of taught me that early on, like, just go and ask them, cold call this person, ask them. So I think that it's, you just can't be too proud because I think that, I don't know, maybe they're afraid to look silly. I think the second thing is I learned very early in life, like before I was 10 years old, was that people who are more successful than you or who are experts at what they do and you're not an expert, they love seeing you succeed and they love seeing a young person who will actually follow their advice. Most people do not follow through on stuff. And from a very early age, I, I learned that like a high IQ wasn't going to be like my specialty. And so if I could just brute force something into like a reality, that that could kind of be like my shtick. And so I was always really good at like emailing someone and being like, hey, what's your advice on this? And they wouldn't reply to me. And I would say, I would email them Four weeks later, and I go, hey, since we last spoke, um, here's, the pro- <laughs> here's, the, here's the progress I made. So I kind of overcame the question that I had for you. What, what do I do now? Can you tell me like how this thing works? And they wouldn't respond to me. And I would just do that literally for months. And eventually, I would get a hold of them. So like for example, the guy who started Business Insider, who started Gilt and MongoDB, his name's Kevin Ryan. 
He started like four or five multi-billion dollar companies. I like emailed this guy for like months with that same shtick. And eventually he kind of helped me. And so that kind of happened with dozens and dozens of people in my life. I would just say like, I don't know what I'm in, what I'm doing. I'm going to go out and just get it done and try to figure it out. Hopefully you can kind of help me along the way. And if they said no at first, I would just come back to them and say, all right, here's the progress. What else? How do I do, what do I do now? Um, and that has always worked. That's like, there's so many nuggets in there. It's so true that if somebody's an expert, if somebody's kind of in a position to help you and they see you making progress and actually listening to their advice, it's like way more fulfilling for them to keep helping you. Like even just, yeah. uh, like I've taught some people how to code and like being a teacher is annoying, man, because half the time the people you're teaching just don't do the things you're trying to teach them to do. Like they just don't want to do it. But when they do, it feels amazing. And yeah, uh, you feel bought into them. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's like now you're invested and now they're like, you kind of you kind of want them to succeed because they're following your advice, and you don't want someone to go wrong after they took your advice. Well, there's this famous story I learned about uh, in sixth grade. I read this book called How to Win Friends and Influence People, and they said something like like Ben Franklin would always ask someone to do him a really tiny favor, and if he if someone did them a did him a small favor, they were more likely to do big favors for him because they kind of felt bought into him. And I thought that was kind of funny, so I was like. I'm going to convince these people to do just a tiny favor for me. Like I would email someone and be like, hey, Groupon founder, what was your first year of revenue? Like I want to try and beat that or something like that. And they would just say it was $1 million or something. And I'd be like, I would reply to them like months later and be like, okay, I didn't beat you, but I'm pretty close. Thanks for the feedback. Now, how do I do this other thing? And they would like typically help me after hearing one or giving me one bit of fav- uh, one bit of advice. Another thing I think that if people want to learn how to kind of talk to folks and get them to help them, they have to understand how to position it. Most people are like, hey, what do I do? And the person's like, the person uh, giving advice is like, I don't know how to advise you, man. Like, this is such an open-ended question. And so what I learned early on was you have to ask these people really specific stuff and you have to be very direct with them. So it's like, can I call you on this day at this time? It will take... 15 minutes, I'm going to ask you these three questions because I'm struggling. If you want to do this, just say yes and put your phone number and I'll do all the work. You don't just just pick up your phone and that's it. And I think that kind of helped a lot too. If you send somebody an email like that, you're pretty much directly communicating that you're an empathetic person, that you're considering how much time they're going to have to spend, how much mental effort they're going to have to expend trying to figure out how to reply to you, and that you're actively trying to make it as easy as possible. And if you're somebody on the receiving end of one of those emails, like you really appreciate that because you like everybody's an unknown quantity. There's millions of people on the internet. You have no idea if you're going to get like a one in a million like time wasting weirdo serial killer, right? And so if somebody like is actually taking the time and demonstrating that they care about the interaction from your perspective, then it really stands out. Like one of my best friends, his name's Julian. I've had him on the podcast twice. He was like one of hundreds of people who emailed me after I started Indie Hackers and his email was like way better than everybody else's. And he actually got me on the phone. I hate talking on the phone. I barely even talked to my mom on the phone. But I talked to him on the phone for like an hour because he was like so good at doing exactly what you're saying. So I love this advice. So people take it to heart. It's like saying if I emailed you and I said, how'd you make your website? You'd be like, oh, I don't want to answer that. That is like such a nebulous question. But if I said like, I'm not technical, so I'm just kind of guessing here. If I said like, Hey, did you use WordPress or build a custom site? That's an easy that's an easy question. You just say custom or something like that. And then the person will reply a few weeks later and be like, awesome, I followed your advice. Check out the site. Thanks for the feedback. End of conversation. But then you can email you like a week later. It's like, okay, the charts that you have on your website, that's amazing. 
where's that plugin or something like that. Like, you know, you kind of like go deeper. Yeah. So do people email you for advice nowadays? Yeah. And they ask me like huge questions and I'm like, man, I don't know. Like, like someone asked me like an example, they're, they're like, what, what do startups sell for? I'm like, dude, that's like asking me, what does art sell for? Like, it's just like, that's an impossible question to answer. But if they email me saying like, hey, what platform did you start the hustle on? I say MailChimp, but we use something custom now. And they say, oh, great. Why? And I'll, then I'll ex- explain why. And that's a way easier question than like, how did you start the hustle? Well, I am about to ask you an open-ended question. <laughs> Just to make it hard on you, Sam. The hustle is now doing eight figures a year, you said and advertising revenue off the back of your newsletter. You started off at $0 just a few years ago. What's it like to go from zero to eight figures so quickly? And what are some of the milestones along the way? The first milestone was getting $30,000 a month in revenue. So when we did the conference, it was like really lumpy revenue. You know, you make, let's say you we have a conference in May, we pretty much make all of our money in between like March and May. And then you lose money the whole rest of the year but you, we ended up being profitable for the whole year because we made so much in that time. But it's really lumpy revenue. But anyway, the first milestone was making it that we were consistently profitable each month through email. And that was when we hit $30,000 in revenue. And then the second milestone that happened 10 months after that was when we hit $100,000 in monthly revenue. And that was a huge deal for us. And then the first million in revenue per month is a was a pretty big milestone. I think that along the way, you said, how does it feel? It doesn't feel that much different. Like, I remember starting my company and I was like, man, if I could get to 10 million a year in revenue, like, I think I'll be happy. And then you get there and you're like, no, come on. How about a hundred? I'll be happy then. I'll be less stressed then. And of course, that won't be the case. So how does it feel? It feels exactly the same. It doesn't feel any different. Yeah, you're still the same person that you were, but with a more successful company. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like a success. That's for sure. Why not? You know how it is, man. Like, let's go back to the bench press example. When you bench 200 pounds, you're like, all right, I feel good about myself. But damn, that guy who's my same weight just did 250. I bet I could, I, I could beat that. And then you get to 250 and you're like, Man, 200 is easy. How the heck did I think that that was like a like success? That's not successful at all. Do you know what I mean? You're like, yeah. okay, so like every step, it's like there is no like arrival moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard not to always be looking up. If you're running a million-dollar company, you're going to be looking at people running billion-dollar companies. If you're a middle-class American, you're going to be looking at rich Americans. And you're probably not going to step back to think about like all the people who are like aren't as far along as you are. And plus, when you improve so gradually, you just adjust. Or even if it's not gradual, like if you get lump sum $10 million in your bank account right now, you're going to be ecstatic. But after a year, year and a half, you're just going to be your normal self. They've actually like researched people who've won the lottery, and that's exactly what happens. We all just live on the hedonic treadmill, and we acclimate to anything over a long enough period of time. But that's one of the, the, like, that's one of the very few unilateral like truths about humans, which is no matter what you achieve or how much better you become after a couple months that becomes the norm and you are no longer thankful for it. Yeah. Like you thought you would be, I mean, that is, that is the case, whether you are, have a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, it always feels that way. And that's the biggest argument, at least in my opinion, for that cliche that you have to appreciate the journey, not just be in it for the destination because the journey is the thing that's always there. The journey is what sticks with you. The journey is the day to day, 
you don't want to be miserable for 10 years doing something just for like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that's going to make you happy for six months. And the tragedy is that it's really hard to believe this once, like before you've done it. Like you just don't really quite believe that story, even though everybody says that's what happens and that's what it feels like. But yeah, like if you're a business owner, you got to figure out a way to enjoy what you're doing. You got to take the tasks that you don't like and cut them out of your day. And you got to focus on the things you like doing because that's pretty much the whole point. Well, I think that's true. And then the other thing that I think a lot of people should do a lot better and I work really hard is like in one regard, I care a lot. In another regard, I don't care at all. If all this goes away tomorrow, I'll go to sleep like a baby the next night. I don't care. Do you know what I mean? I'm really happy. But if everything goes away, if the business shuts down tomorrow, it will not like, I just don't, I just don't care. And because of that, it kind of makes me like appreciate it a little bit more. And it makes me happier with what I have. Huh. It's a very Zen way to look at it. I think for my part, there's a lot of things I want to do. If I had 10 different lives, I would probably do 10 very different things in each of them. And so if any hackers were to go to zero tomorrow, I think I would still be sad. I wouldn't quite be uh, as Zen as you are about it, but I would also be excited about one of these other things that I'm now totally free to explore. Yeah, I think what, I, what I'm trying to say, though, is like I can find happiness in any situation. And I w- have worked really hard to do that. So it's like when I was poor and when I was not poor, they were both really exciting and fun. Maybe, maybe you have more fun when you're poor, actually, to be honest. Like when I was a poor, struggling entrepreneur, like... Uh, that, that was always really exciting. It, it felt great, kind of, in some weird way. Let's talk about the Sam of today. You're sitting on this eight-figure business. It's a media company, so you can work on all sorts of projects and take them in a ton of different directions. And earlier, you alluded to the fact that you've tried a lot of things that didn't work. So let's let's dive into that a little bit. What are some of the things you tried that didn't work, and why didn't they work? So the, like I said, the plan from day one was to build up a huge audience using this email thing and then create more products that we could sell directly to the audience. And so we did a good job of building up that audience. But then when we were thinking of ideas and products to launch, I tried a couple that didn't work out so well. So one of them, they were just called like project names, but let's say one of them was called Jobs. And the idea with Jobs was, can we write editorial content about different companies and charge people who are looking for jobs, charge them money, and kind of give them the inside scoop about different companies. And so the theory was like, let's say I wanted to work at, let's say uh, Stripe, for example. I could like go and do a ton of investigative journalism and interview people and find out the truth of what, what Stripe is like. And maybe I'm just making this up. So don't get angry, Stripe. But let's say that like with Stripe, they said eh, it's kind of overvalued, but so if you are trying to get rich off stock options, it's probably not the right for right person for someone uh, who's trying to like get wealthy quick. But the work-life balance is really good, and they have really good benefits for parents. That's like a really like honest way of describing a company, and that would that makes that company more attractive to certain people. And so the idea was, can I charge people monthly fees in order to uh, tell them the truth about certain companies? And people didn't really want that. I thought it would be cool, and maybe they. Maybe like someone could like figure out a better way to deliver that. But yeah, we launched that and not a lot of people signed up for it. That's for sure. What else? I've made like loads and loads and loads of management and leadership mistakes. But are you looking for just product mistakes? No, let's talk about those two because those are pretty universal. Man, managing is like such a tricky thing, particularly for 
this audience because a lot of people, myself included, are people who just like building stuff. Like most entrepreneurs are people who just like coming up with some crazy idea and like getting early customers and like getting it off the ground. But then when you want, when you have to scale, you really have, it's not about being a maker or being a contributor. It's about being a manager and a leader. And the skill sets for managing and leading are way different than starting something or getting users or, uh, you know, the early stuff like that. It's way different. And frankly, I don't, I'm not very good at the, the managing part. And so I was a horrible manager and I, and I ultimately learned uh, how to hire people. And so I ended up hiring a president. So we have a company president and he's the only one who reports directly to me. And um, he manages everyone or he manages like the managers and they manage, you know, everyone else. And so that took me like up until recently to learn that. So three years of just being a horrible manager. I think that that was like the biggest thing I've, I've learned that has been a, a contributor to making me happy and uh, making our business bigger. How do you find somebody good enough to run the people side of your business and manage everybody for you? That's the hardest part of business is that the question that you answered, I think, is 100% the hardest part. Coming up with products and services that people like, that's not really that hard because you could, if you wanted to, you could just copy other people. So the question that you asked is like the hardest thing. The way that I've done it is, I don't know, how do I do it? I interview loads of people. We talk to loads of people. And I just know that most all of them aren't going to be a, right, the good, a, a good fit. And I just constantly search for that person. So just like a, it's just like a numbers game of talking to a lot of people. The guy who's our president now, he's one of my closest friends. And we kind of became close friends by working together. Adam, he is driven by managing people. Like he lo- he's like, he's a teacher. He, he was a teacher when he first started his career. And he just loves growing people. And he loves the interaction of, with people. And he, he's a very much an extroverted person. So he gets energy off that stuff. And so... I kind of was vulnerable with him early on. And I said, here's my weaknesses. What are your strengths? And they just so happen to be compatible. The question that you're asking, it's really hard for me to answer because that's like the hardest thing ever. It's so challenging. Yeah. One of the things that's always been tough for me personally is that I've never been a full-time employee. I mean, I guess I technically am at Stripe, but like not really. But as a founder... You, you have kind of a slightly different perspective than a full-time employee. And so how do you convince somebody? How do you sell somebody on doing something that you're personally not that interested in doing? One of my previous podcast guests, you put it this way, he said, you kind of have to drink your own Kool-Aid before you can sell anybody else on it. Yeah, you definitely have to let go as well. Like a lot of people, me, and I, I have imagined you're just like this. Uh, you're probably really anal. Like things have to be a certain way. Um, yeah. The colors have to be a certain shade. If it's even slightly off, it's a huge deal. And you kind of just got to let go of that. It's like, would you rather, I'll be really crude here. Would you rather be super rich or would you rather have things your way? And I would have preferred the first one. And I realized that in order to build a cool company, you have to let go because it's just a lot better to have people who are experts at one or two things and let them go and be experts at those one or two things than for you to sweat over every minor detail and go to bed at night angry and wake up angry and anxious. It's just, I just don't like living like that. And so I'm, I'm willing to make sacrifices to like, well, not everything's going to be exactly how I want it. But as long as it's generally going in the right direction, I can find satisfaction in that. 
there's another saying, it's kind of similar. It's, do you want to be right all the time or do you want to have friends? Do you want yeah. to have good relationships? It's the same thing. Like, dude, you can build a really big, like building big businesses. Like if you don't want to innovate too much, it's not that hard. You just got to find people and motivate them effectively and get out of their way. So explain to me this. You've said this a couple of times that building a business is not really the hard part. It's not that hard to figure out what other people are doing and to sort of copy them. What are your principles here? How do you look at this and how can other people have the same mindset? Because the vast majority of early stage founders I talk to find that part really hard. They don't know what to work on. They don't get their first users. They don't get their first dollar most of the time. Uh, how do you see this whole process? Well, when I say hard, I don't mean that it's not going to require a lot of effort. But I'm saying if your goal is just to build a business that makes a certain amount of money, it could be a million dollars a year or it could be a billion dollars a year. Like if you wanted to, you could just go out and start like a janitorial service and cold call every single school building in San Francisco and you will get someone who will say, all right, fine, your service can be the janitor service here. And then you got to go and hustle and find like three janitors and contract them out. Like that's not like intellectually challenging. It's fun. And, it, and it's hard work and that you have to put a lot of effort into it. It's pretty black and white, I think. Now, some companies are like Facebook and Amazon and they kind of like do where it's like, oh man, you guys are like turning everything on its head. But if you just want to build a, a, a business that uh, employs people and is fun to work at, you can kind of just do some simple stuff and you can do it really well. And when I say things aren't that hard, that's what I'm referring to. And so every once in a while, sometimes I'll talk to someone and they have this like crazy idea and I'm like, what's your goal here? And they're like, I just want to quit my job or I just want to build a company. I'm like, why are you making it more complicated than it is? Like, like this is like a really simple business here. Like, don't give away this thing for free and make money off the data. It's like, just triple your prices and make tons of cold calls and you'll find people who want to buy your service as long as it's the product matches their needs. And if it doesn't match their needs, ask them why it doesn't and then just alter and start offering that. It's really not challenging, but the hard part is the emotional part. It's like, well, I'm afraid of failing or I don't think I'm, co I'm not confident enough to actually uh, talk to someone about this or I don't think I'm good enough or this person bothers me who I work with. I don't know how to deal with the confrontation or I'm being a oh, micromanager and I am not comfortable letting go. That's the hard part, all those emotional parts. What's your advice for an early founder who's trying to get over these emotional parts, who's perhaps trying to start an internet business and they're overcomplicating all the stuff instead of just starting a simple business model? Uh, how can they go about doing what you said, kind of with that janitorial service, but on the internet? I would say a couple things. The first thing I would say is things that appear quite huge and quite complicated, like huge companies, started off very simple. And as you go deeper in the process, you find the way and you find new opportunities. So even if you want to build the next Facebook, just always remember that even Facebook started as a very simple, like Harvard yearbook. So go into most projects knowing that like you may be driving from San Francisco to New York and you're driving at night. Your headlights only need to shine 200 feet ahead of you in order to get there successfully. So I always tell people like don't overcomplicate things at first. Just do the simple thing, get your first customer, and then do that same thing 100 times in a row. That's, it's really simple. And as you grow bigger and see more opportunities, then you're going to build something really complex maybe and, and really lucrative and huge. The second thing I tell people is um, know that the majority of people who you view as successful have the exact same doubts as you do. So because we host HustleCon, I've met the founders of WeWork. I've met the founders of Away Travel, of Casper, of pretty much like 
most every company you you the startup that's like in the news right now, I've met the founders and they all have the same doubts that I had when I was starting my company. And once I understood that these big successful people had this, it made me feel a lot more comfortable. And so I would tell people, accept that your fears are normal and that everyone has them, but don't let them hold you back. And it's okay to be afraid, but you have to just do it anyway. Could not agree more. I've talked to so many founders on the podcast, same exact story. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be insecure. Those are pretty universal feelings, but you can push through them anyway and get started. And also your first piece of advice to start small and then go from there. I think you are the perfect example of that from hot dog stand to media empire. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Sam, and sharing your story with us. Can you tell listeners where they can go and learn more about what you're up to with The Hustle nowadays? Yeah. So if you just go to thehustle.co and sign up, you can uh, sign up for The Hustle. You can go to trends.co and sign up for trends. Or you can just search me on Twitter, Sam Parr. My handle is the Sam Parr, and you can follow me or tweet at me there, and uh, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. All right. Thanks so much, Sam. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.